Well, if you would, grab your Bibles and open to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, we are going to read in just a few moments, verses 1 through 7, that will be our text this Lord's Day as we continue to make our way through the book of Acts. So Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, but before I have you stand for the reading of the Word of God, I've got a brief announcement for you all. I thought it would be appropriately placed just before the sermon as it relates to the sermons over the next four weeks. Um, I have spoken to a number of, of brothers and sisters in the church, staff members, elders, and others. And uh, as many of you know, all of you perhaps don't know, but many of you know that I have upcoming um, some of the larger examinations that take place in a PhD program. I'm privileged as your pastor to uh, continue to be supported as an aspiring scholar, um, not because I desire to do anything else other than what I'm doing right now, but because I want to continue to improve at what I'm doing right now. And so, as you all know, I've been in a PhD program uh, since I've come on as pastor here, and comprehensive examinations are uh, one of the, I guess you could call them pinnacles in a PhD program. And they are three weeks out from tomorrow. So three weeks from tomorrow, I will be sitting for a series of tests that will take place over three days. Um, And it will just be a blank sheet of paper and, um, you know, intimidating, daunting professors um, who are going to be grading all of the essays. Um, You don't need to know all the details about that, although if you want to know those details, you're welcome to ask me later. What you do need to know, however, is after I had a number of these conversations, I have decided to be out of the pulpit over the next three Lord's Days. Um, A number of you encouraged me to do that. I didn't originally plan on doing that. I am grateful now that I am doing that because it is difficult to find the time to prepare for such a series of examinations. And so this is me letting you know and thanking you as a congregation for prioritizing the word of God and not prioritizing a particular personality who comes and shares the word of God. And so the next few weeks will give the opportunity for that. Um, I, do, I do plan on being around. I'm not, I'm not taking off entirely. However, I'm gonna be spending a, a great majority of my weeks in constant study and preparation. You get two chances to do this. Um, if, you, if you fail the first chance, uh, which a, a failing grade is, is any question below an A. So if I have one question that I make a B in, I fail the entire day. It's the way they do this uh, in the PhD program. And so it's, it's quite difficult. Um, so you get one more chance to retake and then that's it. Um, I'd like to get it done the first time. Um, if it's all the same to you. Uh, I, have, I have others that didn't get it done the first time, uh, friends in the program, and they got it done the second time. I'd prefer just to avoid that altogether and get it done the first time. So uh, this is me letting you know, but it's also me thanking you, uh, thanking you for, for praying over the next few weeks. I covet your prayers. Um, what I am doing in my PhD program, I am convinced, is not fundamentally in service to a theological academy. It's fundamentally in service to the church. I believe that with all my heart. Uh, my program is focused on the church. People ask me from time to time, what are you going to do when you finish your PhD? And I tell them, well, um, no longer work on a PhD. <laughs> and continue to pastor. So that is my desire. That's my ambition. Um, I, I really do appreciate your prayers. If you have any questions for me, um, you're welcome to reach out to me. Again, I'm not disappearing 
I may not be here one of those Sundays, I'm not sure just yet because I'm gonna go out of town for a period of that time in order to really focus uh, in prayerful study. Um, and, uh, and be praying for me if you would, be praying for my wife and my children. I'll be awarded a PhD when this is over. If the Lord wills, she ought to be awarded the PhD when this is over. So please be in prayer for her. And uh, we'll have other brothers who will be bringing God's word. We'll do a short series. By the way, we're doing a short series over the next four weeks. And then I need to move on, I know, um, on becoming a healthy church member. So we're, ta- we're, we're deciding to take the opportunity to take a break from Acts for about four or five weeks. I don't know. You know how those things tend to develop um, when I have opportunity to develop them. But we're going to be taking a short break, about four weeks or so, to focus on a topical series called Becoming a Healthy Church Member. And we'll have other pastors in this pulpit. And then I'll have the privilege, the week of my tests, actually, the week of my tests, when I finish those tests, they'll conclude on a Thursday afternoon, and uh, hopefully I'll get some sleep at that point. And, um, but I'll be preaching that following Lord's Day, and it'll be in that series, Becoming a Healthy Church Member. So all of that to say, again, please be praying and thank you. Thank you as a congregation for supporting a pastor who is committed to faithful Christian scholarship in service to the church. I am convinced we need more and more pastors um, who are committed to a deep study of the word of God alongside of brothers and sisters throughout church history, which is what I have the privilege of doing. So Uh, That is a bit of an FYI and a thank you. Please be in prayer and feel free to ask any questions you may have, just not right now, okay? So Acts chapter six is where we're going to be. I'm I'm looking forward to getting into this text together. It's a shorter text. There's so much in it um, and we won't be able to cover every facet of it, but perhaps by God's grace we'll do it justice. If you would though, because you are the people of God and this is the word of God and it is after all the Lord's day, would you please stand for the reading but not just the reading, the receiving of the word of God. Acts chapter six, verses one through seven, Luke writes as he is carried along by God's spirit, these words. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now notice verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand 
forever. You may be seated. I recently heard a story that I wanted to share with you about the Orange Bowl last year. Know anything about the Orange Bowl last year? Some of you do. For those of you who know very little about college football, the Orange Bowl is one of the biggest games of the year in college football. Well, last year, the Tennessee Vols defeated the Clemson Tigers in the Orange Bowl. And there was, as the story goes, there was an empty seat next to a woman in the stadium, surprisingly. And another fan saw this and remarked that he was surprised to see that the seat wasn't filled. It was my husband's, she informed him, but he recently passed away. I'm so sorry for your loss, the man replied. After the conversation had progressed a bit, the man inserted, I am a bit surprised, however, that there wasn't a family member or a friend, perhaps, who desired to come with you in your husband's place. I am too, the woman responded. But they all insisted on going to the funeral. I had you right where I wanted you, didn't I? (laughs) The moral of the story, keep your priorities straight. Keep your priorities straight. Now, this exchange never actually happened. It's only a lie if I don't tell you it's a lie. It's it's an adapted story. Younger worshipers, you should not be listening at this point, okay? (laughs) But what it does do is it illustrates a challenge that we all face, doesn't it? The challenge of maintaining proper priorities. That's a challenge. How do we we consistently maintain what matters most in our life? How do we properly arrange the various priorities that we are to maintain as even followers of Jesus Christ, as husbands, as fathers, as mothers, as Wives, grandmothers, grandfathers, as friends, as employees, so on and so forth. And this challenge of maintaining proper priorities, as I've thought about this, doesn't typically involve elevating bad things over and above good things. That's, that's not typically um, where the enemy gets us as followers of Jesus Christ. Rather, it usually takes the form of elevating good things over and above better or even best things. That's where maintaining proper priorities really gets us or the failure to do so gets us. Well, in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, the church led by the 12 apostles. Remember, Judas is He's out of the mix now. He's passed away, but he's been replaced by a man named Matthias. So there are 12 apostles, and they're leading the church in Jerusalem, and they faced the difficulty of maintaining proper priorities. And throughout this text, what Luke does is he highlights what I would call the central priority of the church in between Christ's first coming and his second coming. The central priority of the church in between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming. If you're taking notes, we are going to unpack this short text in three stages. You can jot these down if you like. We use this outline on a regular basis. I find it to be helpful and faithful to the word of God. First, we will identify what we are going to call the problem. 
there is a problem that surfaces quite early on in the text. In fact, it surfaces in verse 1. What is this problem? We'll look together at that problem. Secondly, we find the solution to this problem. We're going to identify the solution and unpack it a bit together. And then finally, after looking together at first the problem and then the solution, we're going to conclude our time with a bit of application. That is, how is it that the problem and the solution we find in this text informs us as followers of Jesus Christ right here in the 21st century in Powell, Tennessee. Now, younger worshipers, younger worshipers, our children in the room, there are a couple of things I want you to look for as we're making our way through this text and through this outline, okay? Again, parents, grandparents, guardians, we want our younger worshipers in the text of the Bible. We want their Bibles open. We want them participating with us. And this is just my feeble attempt at continuing to encourage that, okay? Um, First of all, younger worshipers, I want you to look for this. What were the apostles unwilling to give up? They were doing something, and they were unwilling to give it up. What was it? Okay? So I want you, as we march through the text, I want you to look for this, okay? Look for this. What were they unwilling to stop doing, or what were they unwilling to give up? Second, what grows according to Luke? Remember, Luke is the one writing this as he's carried along by the Spirit. What grows according to Luke? I'm gonna give you a little hint here. This is the very end of our text. Something grows. And depending on what English translation our younger worshipers have, there are subtle ways of communicating something very important there. We'll point that out when we get there. We won't spend a lot of time on it probably. But what grows according to Luke at the end of our text, all right? So let's get into this together. Let's begin by stating the problem. Here's the problem that surfaces immediately in Acts chapter six, verse one. The Greek-speaking widows were neglected. It's that simple. The Greek-speaking widows in the church of Jerusalem, were being neglected. Now look with me at verse 1, where we find this problem. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the, note, Hellenists, we'll come back to that word, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, we'll come back to that word as well. Now, what was this complaint? Why were they complaining? Because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, I want to take a step back here and point something out that we need to point out in the book of Acts. And we need to point it out every time we come across something like this in the New Testament. It is often easy to read through Acts with rose-colored theological glasses on. And what I mean by that is it's, it's often easy to read through the book of Acts and think, man, the, the church in Acts was absolutely perfect. I hear people say all the time, let's just become an Acts church. Or let's become a New Testament church. And I had a professor who would often say, which, which church in the New Testament? The church of Corinth? The church of Laodicea? Which church do you want to become? Well, look, it's important for us to recognize with Luke that the church has always, since Pentecost, been afflicted by the challenge to separate and to divide. And these challenges often surface in the context, by the way, of relationships. 
They just do. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I want to highlight this for you. Luke won't have us romanticize about the way things once were. He won't have us do that. Christians are so prone to do it. How do I know that? Because I is one. Right? I'm prone to look back and romanticize about the glory days, whatever those are. I mean, look, I was practically an NFL football player in seventh grade. Have you ever heard guys tell stories about their football days? And I think, goodness gracious, we ought to be in the NFL right now, right? No, we, what do we do? We romanticize about it. We talk about the past by forgetting all the negatives and elevating and exaggerating all the positives. That's what we do. Luke won't have us do that. No. No, Christ is building his church, yes. The Spirit of God absolutely is filling the people of God. And the, the church is growing rapidly. And guess what? This growth causes trouble. Causes problems. It causes problems from within, Acts chapter 6. It causes problems from the outside. We have a man that gets stoned in Acts 7 as the church is growing. And that will be the story of the church until Jesus Christ returns and finishes what he began. That's the story of church history, brothers and sisters. It's filled with difficulty. Difficulty that is indeed eclipsed by God's preserving grace in Christ. And so this is the case for us here in this text in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. So in our text... One through seven, rather. In our text, a particular group of Christians in the Jerusalem church, they feel neglected, as I mentioned, by another group of Christians in the same church. And you know this. This continues to happen to this day. One group of Christians in the church feels neglected by another group of Christians in the church. He's describing us. He's describing our experience. So lean into that. Now, Luke refers, I told you we'd come back to these words. He refers to the group with the complaint as the Hellenists. Remember that? Your, your translation may do something a bit different, but if you're holding the ESV or if you're following along with us in one of our pew Bibles, those are ESVs, the ESV translators chose Hellenist, and it's, it's a bit of a difficult term. But Hellenist is another way just of referring to and describing Greek-speaking people, okay? The context tells us a bit more about what kind of Greek-speaking person it is. It can be a Greek-speaking Jew who's not a Christian. It can be a Greek-speaking Jew who is a Christian. Okay, it can be any host of, of groups of people. All that the word Hellenist means is they're Greek-speaking. That's their primary language. Well, in our text, these are Greek-speaking Jewish Christians. Remember, the church is Jewish at this point. It's Jewish. Now, that's going to begin to change over time, and it's going to cause, you named it, conflict. And we'll get there in Acts. But at this point, these are Greek-speaking Jewish Christians who have the complaint. And the complaint of these Greek-speaking Jewish Christians is against another group Luke calls the Hebrews. Now, again, if Hellenists is Greek-speaking, what would Hebrews be? Hebrew-speaking. Perhaps, more, more precisely, Aramaic-speaking. Probably Aramaic. Closely related language. So the Hebrews, that is the Hebrew or Aramaic-speaking Jewish Christians are the ones about whom the Greek-speaking Jewish Christians are complaining, all right? That's what those terms mean. 
According to the Greek-speaking Christians, their widows were being neglected when the church would daily distribute food to all its widows. God, by the way, God consistently called his people throughout the Old Covenant and throughout the New Covenant to provide tangible care for widows. That's consistently the case. Widows matter from beginning to end in the Word of God. Widows and orphans are oftentimes described together. And so there are a number of passages you can look, look at. Exodus 22, verse 22 is one of those passages. Deuteronomy, chapter 14, verse 29. We actually unpacked that text some time ago where God instructs Israel to care for the widows and others who are in need among the people of God. Now, now remember that. These aren't, these aren't widows outside of the church, although indeed the church should care for those widows as well. These are widows in the family. Widows in the church. And uh, in fact, the New Covenant, the New Testament continues this same commitment. James chapter 1, verse 27 summarizes pure and undefiled religion in this way. Now listen carefully to James' definition. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Pure and undefiled religion before God our Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And then he goes on to say, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So this wasn't the kind of neglect the church could ignore. When the Greek-speaking Christians claimed that their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of the food that was given to the widows, the church could not ignore this complaint. Now notice, notice that the church was already taking care of the widows, okay? This is not a text about how the church should take care of the widows. In fact, the text assumes the church is taking care of the widows. Do you notice that? The daily distribution is already happening, this text addresses a portion of the widows who perhaps are being neglected. Now, look with me at verses two and three where we find the solution to this problem. Because that's the problem. There are these Greek-speaking Christians whose widows, the Greek-speaking widows, are being neglected in the daily distribution. What about the solution? Look at verse two and verse three with me, if you would. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples. So they called the whole church. How many would this have been at this time in this place? Difficult to know. We know the church had grown to thousands and thousands, but that's considering they are dispersed in various ways in and around Jerusalem. But this is a large group of people. The congregation gathers together. The 12 summoned the full number of the disciples, and they said, notice verse 2, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, verse 3, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Now, the problem, we've mentioned this, the problem was the Greek-speaking widows were being neglected, right? That's our problem. The solution is this. You can jot this down if you're taking notes. The solution is the church appointed qualified men to help care for the widows, it's right there in the text. The widows are being neglected, Greek-speaking widows, that is. And the solution is the church was to appoint qualified men to help care for the widows. 
we, we'll probably come back to this in just a few moments, but throughout church history, many Christians, I would argue justifiably, interpret Acts chapter six as a description of the very first deacons. And I affirm that interpretation. It's one that I hold to. While the word deacon, the substantive or, or the noun deacon doesn't occur in Acts 6, 1 through 7, uh, the verb does to serve, to deacon, and uh, moreover, the function does, right? And throughout church history, Christians have interpreted Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7 as the institution of the office of deacon. And I think that's absolutely what's taking place here. So the church appointed qualified men, we could call them deacons, to help care for the Greek-speaking widows. Now, there are a couple of items in the text that we can't lose sight of. A couple of items here. First, as we've just stated, God's people were, were called to demonstrate love and care for one another. They were to care for one another. We saw this back in chapter four where, where brothers and sisters are selling their property, their homes, and their possessions in order to meet needs that surfaced in the church. Luke does not want us to lose sight of this. This is a community formed around the gospel of Jesus Christ, formed around faith in Jesus Christ, and it's a community that's expressing by the power of the Spirit of God love for other members in the church. The church must take care of its own. So we can't lose sight of that as we talk about what I'm going to talk about here in just a moment. So hold on to that. The second thing, item perhaps in the text that we can't lose sight of, is while providing care was essential for the church, especially for the widows, it was not to replace the central priority for the apostles of preaching the word of God. This is important to see in the text. There was this central priority for the apostles in Acts chapter 6, and they don't apologize for it. They maintain the need to care for the widows, but they say this must not usurp the priority of proclaiming God's word. And so the problem of needing to care for these widows among the members of The church provided the occasion to highlight what the apostles must continue to be about, proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ through all of Scripture. And that's really what Acts is about. It's really what Acts is about. Now, we're going to nuance this just a little bit, okay? Because this text is not exclusively about the calling of an apostle. There are no apostles in this room, I would suggest. This text isn't even exclusively about the calling of elders, although we could draw some parallels here, as this is the text that's often used to describe the institution of deacons. It's also a text that's used to describe what elders would eventually do in the local churches, and the apostles were serving as elders in the church of Jerusalem. So it's indeed true that elders ought to commit themselves to prayerful study and proclamation of God's word. But it's not exclusively a text about the leaders proclaiming God's word. What I want to suggest to you is that the apostles were not the only ones who ought to be proclaiming the word of God. And let me give you a few pieces of evidence from the text in and around our text, okay? Consider Stephen. 
Stephen, we haven't gotten him yet in the text, he's actually listed for us in verse five. Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Stephen's one of the first deacons. He's not an apostle. He's not an elder. And yet, Stephen boldly proclaims God's word in chapter seven, resulting in his martyrdom. In fact, Luke will commit 53 verses devoted to articulating what Stephen proclaimed. Why would he do that? I want to suggest to you, he does that to emphasize that the calling of the apostles, the central priority of the apostles to proclaim God's word actually was to empower every member of the body of Christ to do the same. The apostles had to remain committed to the word of God. Why? Because they alone were to proclaim it? Absolutely not. Because they were to serve as catalysts and those who equipped the rest of the congregation to go and proclaim the same word of God. And so Stephen does it. He models for us what it means for the apostles to remain committed to the word of God and to equip others to proclaim the word of God. Stephen goes out and proclaims God's word with boldness and he gives his life doing so. Also, I want you to look quickly at how chapter five concluded. Okay, this is right before our text. Chapter five, verse 42. Look at verse 42 of chapter five. And every day, this is describing the church, okay? Every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching what? That the Christ is Jesus. That's the message. That's God's word. Now, who didn't cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus? The whole church. It's the whole church sharing in this proclamation. In fact, back in Acts chapter four, and we can't spend too long here, I'm building a case here, in case you can, can't tell. Back in Acts chapter four, verse 31, the church gathered to pray and the spirit of God filled everyone present so that each person continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You remember that? So the church gathered, they prayed, the spirit filled them, and the text tells us back in Acts four thirty-one, they all went out and they boldly proclaimed the message of the gospel, God's word. You can't miss this in Acts. Luke will not have us reserve the privilege of proclaiming God's word to the office of an apostle or an elder or even a deacon. It's for all Christians to proclaim the message of the gospel, to proclaim God's word to others. I would describe the apostle's role in this way, I think. And this is simplistic. It's, it's a bit reductionistic, but I think it's accurate at least. The apostles devoted themselves to proclaiming God's word. Now, don't miss this. In order to equip other believers to proclaim God's word. I hear that again. This is what the apostles did. They prioritized and devoted themselves to proclaiming God's word in order to equip other believers to proclaim God's word. This is, this is comparable to my stewardship as a senior pastor. Right? You don't, you don't gather every Lord's Day just to come and hear me proclaim God's word and walk out and say, you know what, that was great. I'll see you next Lord's Day. That's not why I proclaim the gospel to you throughout Scripture. 
It's not why we open up God's word week after week after week. And in some respects, my stewardship is unique in, in this way. I have, I have the privilege of devoting a large amount of time to spending in the text. Perhaps in God's mercy, I've received a unique gift by the Spirit of God to proclaim with clarity and passion the word of God. But it isn't that I alone am to proclaim God's word. I proclaim God's word to you so you will get out of that seed in just a little while and go and proclaim that same word. Amen. That's why. So it is with elders, all elders. So it is with Sunday school teachers. So it is with Bible teachers in our academy. Right? So it is in God's mercy with our parents who proclaim God's word, proclaim God's word to their children with eager anticipation that the day will come when they don't, they don't only believe God's word, but they also serve as instruments of continuing to proclaim God's word. Now, let's, let's return to our solution of appointing qualified men to care for the widows. This solution ensured that the widows were cared for and it protected the priority of the apostles proclaiming God's word so that the rest of God's people would proclaim God's word. And I want to say here that this reminds me, I hope it reminds you as well, that the church must never become fundamentally, okay? The church must never become fundamentally an institution for social justice. Justice is a good thing. It belongs to the Lord. Things are only just in so far as they reflect the character of God. Don't hear me say we're not for justice, but when the church kind of degenerates and becomes an institution that focuses primarily on social justice, they run the risk of forfeiting the central priority of proclaiming the gospel. We've seen this happen time and time again with many ministries that began Christian, distinctively Christian, and have eventually become uh, a gathering for philanthropists who just want to do good for other people. And I'm grateful for those, for those organizations, but they're not the church. Amen. They're not the church. No, the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. According to the words of the Apostle Paul to Timothy, the church is the gathering of God's family for the preservation and the proclamation of God's word. We have to be about that centrally. Amen. And what's, what's fantastic about this is when we remain committed to the centrality of proclaiming God's word, we will become people who care about demonstrations of that word in the lives of others. So, it would be an appropriate place for us to ask this question with a bit more clarity. What is the message that we proclaim? And Luke does this time and time again. He presents it in a number of different forms. But what is the message that the church must continue to proclaim? What is the message that I aim to bring to you every Lord's Day from the word of God so that then you take hold of that word and you take it outside of these walls and proclaim that same message? Paul described it in this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 19. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. 
That's the message. In other words, through the incarnation, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has dealt sufficiently with our sins. And he's kindly and graciously reconciled us to himself by means of Christ's work. I would be remiss if I didn't exhort you even this morning that if you haven't placed your faith, your trust, and your allegiance in Jesus Christ alone, that you would do that this morning. That you would recognize that the only sufficient way to be in a right relationship with God on account of your own brokenness, on account of your own sin, is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Christ who died in your place and was raised from the dead on the third day and promises someday to come back to this earth to finish, to wrap up everything he started in his life, death, and resurrection. If that's where you are, or if you have questions about what it means to follow Christ, if you have questions about what Christianity is all about, we welcome those. We want to have those conversations. This is for us life and death. And so after the service, stick around for just a moment. And on your way out, one of these double doors, take a left, and on the right-hand side out there is a room called Crossroads, and you can go into that room and have a conversation with one of us, one of our elders, and we would love to come alongside of you, and even you, potentially alongside of us, as we learn to understand, better understand, trust, and treasure Jesus Christ, who is our message in God's word. Now, look with me at verse 4. Look at me at verse four and then we'll transition soon to some application before we wrap up. Verse four, the apostles respond after they recognize that they must remain committed to proclaiming the word of God, preaching the word of God. They say this in verse four, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Don't miss that. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, this is the first time in our text that prayer appears. It appears all throughout the book of Acts. But it's the first time it explicitly appears in our text. Why? Because the ministry of proclaiming God's word is so closely related to depending on God in prayer. We could even say it this way. The apostles were committed to the prayerful proclamation of God's word. That's a mouthful, I know. We could even say it this way. The apostles prioritized the prayerful proclamation of God's word. That's the idea. Don't see these two things as as separate activities. They're related activities. As the apostles were proclaiming Jesus Christ, they were in prayer. As they were studying God's word, they were in prayer. Many of you understand a bit about what this is like. I, I find some of the richest times of prayer in my life is, uh, is when I'm spending time in study of the word of God. And it's not that I plan to pray, it's that God's word brings me to my knees. And there is a truth that is so very sweet. And it's a truth often that reveals who God is, who I am in contrast and how merciful and gracious God has been in Christ. And so the best times of studying God's word are prayerful times. The best sermons through which a pastor proclaims Jesus Christ are prayerful sermons. Sermons that are offered in dependence on the work of the Holy Spirit in prayer. 
the most effective means of evangelism, when God's people go out and proclaim Christ to others, are times when God's people are calling out to God and depending on God in prayer. And so see these things as related activities. It's really a single activity of prayerfully proclaiming the word of God. Now, in verses five and six, the congregation appoints and the apostles ordain seven men. I mentioned to you earlier, Luke mentioned Stephen. We're just running through this for just a moment. Luke mentions Stephen, who will be the focus of the rest of chapter six and all of chapter seven. So in about five or six weeks, we'll talk about Stephen. Looking forward to that. And then notice verse seven, where Luke writes that the word of God, younger worshipers, this was one of your questions. Verse seven, the word of God continued to increase. You see that? Fascinating way to describe the growth of the church. That's what he's describing. He's describing the growth of the church. How? In terms of the word of God growing. What does that tell us? It tells us that the church only grows as the word of God is proclaimed. To such an extent that Luke can even describe it as the word growing. It's a figure of speech. A metonymy, if you love those sorts of things. If you don't, that's fine. Dismiss what I just shared with you. But that's what's taking place. The word of God grows, which is another way of saying God's people are proclaiming God's word in such a way, empowered by the spirit of God, depending on God in prayer, and the church then continues to grow. Well, we've identified the following problem. The Greek-speaking widows were being neglected. Second, we identified a solution to the problem. The church appointed qualified men. To do what? To care for the widows. We could also add to that, though. The church appointed qualified men to care for the widows and to protect the priority of proclaiming God's word. To protect the priority of proclaiming God's word. Finally, let's conclude with application. I'm going to give you two. I'm going to give you two applications this morning that I think grow right out of the text. First of all, First of all, as a church, let's care well for one another as a congregation. Let's care well for our widows. Let's care well for our shut-ins. Many of you do this already, okay? I feel in some respects like the Apostle Paul when he's exhorting the Thessalonians to love one another. He says this, you love one another so well, excel still more. You're already doing it. Keep doing it and grow in doing it. Let's care well for brothers and sisters in this church who desperately need the love and care and concern and tangible demonstrations of God's mercy from us as a church. Our deacons are a tremendous example of this. We have some of our older brothers and sisters, more seasoned brothers and sisters in the church who do this so very well. If you join this church, you need to know this, you're joining a family You're joining a family and there are family members you've never met. There are family members that can't come on the Lord's Day. They can't get out of the house. Uh, Well, how do we care well for them? Well, again, there are others who are caring well, but I'd like to see us continue to do that and do it even more. I'd like to see us return to taking meals to some of our shut-ins. I'd like to see that. It's a desire I have. We've talked about it some. I'd like to see us when we take a meal to some of our shut-ins to bring God's word with us and to open up God's word together and proclaim God's word. Proclaim God's word so they can be nurtured in the word of God. And by the way, 
It doesn't mean that it has to be your senior pastor who does this. I proclaim God's word to equip you to proclaim God's word. If you walk out of church every Lord's Day and you think, man, that was just a good sermon, I know that's not always what you think, that's okay, I don't think that either. But if you walk out every... If you walk out every Lord's Day and you think, man, that was such a good sermon, that was wonderful, and you do nothing with it, then it was an unsuccessful sermon. So let's care well for those in our church that need our care. Second, let's prioritize and participate in proclaiming God's word with prayer. There's a lot there. Let's prioritize and participate in proclaiming God's word with prayer. I'm skipping a bit here, not because you're pressuring me to wrap up, but I'm pressuring myself to wrap up just a bit. This past week, we had the privilege, some of us, of attending a workshop hosted right here on our campus. It was taught by a man named Tony Payne. Tony is the author of The Trellis and the Vine. Great book. If you've not read that book, you should read that book. Some of you have told me my my books are stacking up on my desk because you keep telling me I got to read this book. That's good. It's good. Trellis in the vine. And he argues that to be a disciple of Christ is to make disciples. To be a disciple is to make disciples. You see? To believe the gospel is to proclaim the gospel. This is a biblical concept. To be instructed in God's word is to then go and instruct others in God's word. One of the statements that Tony made about the sermons on the Lord's Day was something like this. He asked all of us, and there are other churches represented in the room. He said, what if, what if every Lord's Day church members left with the commission to go and share what they had learned in God's word with another person? What if that was a part of the commission? Every person who attended worship that Sunday morning had the commission to pick one person that week to share the message they heard in God's word with. What if you went out this week and you made it your goal to take Acts chapter six and go share it with somebody? And go share it. Hey, can I share with you what God taught me last Sunday at church? Some will say no, that's okay, God bless them. Very few will say no. Some will say yes. Sit down with them, open up God's word and declare what you have heard this morning. Uh, You may or may not be aware of this, but Pastor Brett and Deanna, his wife, once served overseas um, in Southeast Asia. And while they were there, they were involved in, in a small church, I gather. Brett, is that right, brother? Small church, met in a home. The final third of their church service the final third of their church service was devoted to each member practicing sharing the message they just heard from God's word. One third of the service. Okay, now let's get together and let's share it. Whatever pastor so-and-so just shared or brother so-and-so just shared, let's share it together. Why? So you can go out this week and declare God's word that you heard declared that Lord's Day. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. We proclaim to equip you to proclaim. All right, Stephen Covey, who was the late businessman, author, speaker, he was known for a simple statement. And the statement went something like this. The main thing, you probably know this, is to keep the main thing the main thing. 
The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Church family, there are so many good things we could and even we should do. We should do. And by God's grace, we will do those things. Caring for one another is certainly one of those activities. However, in so doing, hear me, we must maintain the priority and the centrality of proclaiming the word of God. Unashamedly, unapologetically, prayerfully, until Jesus Christ returns. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I am grateful for the privilege of proclaiming your word this morning. Not so that seed will be sown on a rocky path or among thorns that will choke out the seed of the word of God, but I've had the privilege of proclaiming your word so that seed might be sown on rich soil and grow, sprout, and bear fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. And that these, my brothers and sisters, would leave this place with the commission to go and participate in the proclamation of the word of God as disciples of Christ. We pray these things in the name of Christ, your Son, and our Savior, and all God's people said, amen.